new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. This is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us again. I uh, continue to love the support you're giving us and the podcast and those that are on the podcast, listening to stories and, and sharing uh, just the platform with other people. I'm very grateful for that. So we have an interesting uh, podcast, say at least. It's something a little different from academia and some other stuff that we had on before, so I'm looking forward to discussing this further. Yeah, we're here with Dr. Kiri Michalika, correct? Thanks. I didn't murder it? Okay. <laughs> Who um, is studying and you know investigating breathwork right now. Yeah, I'm about halfway through the training program for holotropic breathwork. Nice, and so we met actually through my supervisor, Dr. Kathy Galiski, and so you you know Brock a little bit. You're a fan of Brock, I hear? Well, I teach here part-time in the psychology department, and I also did my master's and my doctorate here at Brock. Nice, and just uh, very briefly, uh, what did you focus your, your graduate studies on? In my master's with Kathy Galiski, I, I, uh, I looked at the correlations between different personality factors and forgiveness, and different motivations for forgiveness. And for my doctorate, I looked at the correlations between creativity and mental illness. More specifically, I looked at um, visual artists and schizophrenia. Beautiful. That's Beautiful. incredible. Yeah, it's yeah. an interesting topic. I mean, you have yeah. such a wide, varying uh, research and uh, experience, right? I mean, we could do a whole podcast on forgiveness and grief. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we won't do it this time. No. No, this is a very special podcast. Why is that, Sean? We're going to talk about breath work. Um, now, Carrie, we quickly got into it, but what are the different types of breath work? Well, how is this different from like maybe normal breathing? I thought we knew how to do that. <laughs> this is quite different. Um, and it's even very different than the breathing you would do during meditation, which is just a deeper breathing with your stomach. Um, but this is a technique that was developed by Dr. Stanislav Prof. Um, he was a psychoanalyst in Czechoslovakia, and he was doing the work following Freud, where they want to bring the unconscious conscious, because when we shove things down in our unconscious, it can manifest into various psychological or physical ailments. And one day they got a shipment of LSD, and they wanted to know, you know, what can we do with this? Is this like a model of psychosis? But what they ended up finding is instead that it was sort of a way of getting into the unconscious at a high speed. And so he did a lot of therapy with LSD and ended up doing the same thing in America. And many researchers at the time were finding that it was one of the best techniques to be used for drug addicts um, because it got their pain up and they were able to process it in that moment. But when um, there was the laws changed and they weren't able to do that research anymore, he wanted to develop a technique in order to access the unconscious mind. So he developed this technique called holotropic breathwork, which is a very intense form of breathing. You're basically, for three hours, it's like you're like deep and fast, cyclic breathing. And it's the aim is to access non-ordinary states of consciousness. So similar to Freud, who said that we need to bring the unconscious up to the conscious so that it, we can not repress it and so it doesn't manifest into these other pathologies. Um, breathwork is another way to get things up into the conscious mind so we can process and deal with them in the moment. That's incredible. It makes me think about how like uh, I've heard of stories of yogis doing uh, things like that to get to that state, right? There's different methods to achieving it. You yeah. know, LSD was... At that time, uh, when they got a hold of it, uh, the research method to get 
to it that way, whatever they wanted to get to. Um, and then different techniques, meditation, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's other similar methods out there. There's something called rebirthing that also uses a very strong type of breathing. It's not necessarily for the same amount of time. And then there's also fire breath, which is usually they I think done in, in Kundalini yoga, which is similar. But this is also different because it's for three hours and um, you have very loud and powerful music going at the same time. So the music will also take you on a, a journey. And, and uh, so it makes it a little bit distinct. And plus there's a component to it that's also art therapy. So afterwards you paint a mandala and then have a little share group after. So there's a lot of different components involved. That's really interesting. So how did you get trained in, or how did you even come about this? Was it something that you, you learned in school or was it something that someone else sort of showed you that said maybe you should try this? Okay. Well, actually I was, um, I was visiting with um, Dr. Harry Hunt, who um, was a professor here at Brock who retired a few years ago. And he had a book on his bookshelf written by Stanislav Brock. And um, it was basically a map of the unconscious. And I read that book like a Bible. It was like he went beyond Freud by saying that, you know, we go into the unconscious and we get that biographical material from our childhood, even beyond Carl Jung, who said that we we go into almost like a spiritual realm sometimes when we um, access these unconscious states. And he um, came up with this whole other um, layer almost of the unconscious that people go into, which has to do with their birth and being in the womb and different aspects of that that correlate with problems and pathologies that people carry through in their lives that might have cycled. Like, for example, somebody might always feel like they have like throat issues and then, I don't know, maybe they have some kind of thought or vision that maybe they were, I don't know, hung in a past life. And then, of course, they find out the cord was wrapped around their neck and birth. So there's all these like, they call them coex systems where these like patterns that sort of travel with people. That, yeah, that's incredible. Crazy. So you read that book and you just, uh, you felt like, I got to get into this. I flew to Seattle and did breath work with Stan Groffman. <laughs> oh, wow. Incredible. And then I, I looked into the training program, which is a pretty intensive. It's an eight-week training. Um, you learn about all kinds of different things, how to deal with spiritual emergencies, um, how to deal with the music. And it also involves body work sometimes because sometimes it involves releasing blocked emotions and energies that people might have while they're doing the breath work. So it's very involved. Yeah. What kind of uh, emotions come out of those sessions? Because I can imagine that people, uh, there might be some people crying, maybe oh. some people laughing, I don't know. Yeah. The first, I was real shocked by the first one I did in a room full of 100 people. I mean, some woman started to scream even before the music came on, and it took four people just to like hold her onto her mat. I saw someone else, it looked like he was almost like choking, and somebody came and like put pressure on his chest, and then all of a sudden he had this beautiful release, and I, I talked to him after, and he said that so much was, energy was released from him. People screaming, crying, laughing, so much comes up, and it's all okay, and because it's, it's it's like a safe place to release all of those emotions and feelings and energies. And, and other people screaming or releasing emotions doesn't affect you? Interestingly enough, if someone started to whisper to someone, it'll affect you and take you right out of process. But if someone's screaming, in a sense, it almost like helps. I remember one time I was involved in breath work and there was two women screaming and I was having these, it's almost like I was crying for all of the women in the world who were abused and because of their genders. And it was, it really actually helped me. <laughs> so if it's, as long as it's not intentional and someone's not trying to be disruptive, then I think it all just kind of flows and it's all meant to happen somehow. And do you find um, that people have a hard time starting this or doing it for the full three hours? 
is there like um, limitations people come in with that they just can't for whatever reason? I think a lot of people when they first come, they're they're a little bit reserved. They might not fully go into it. Um, they might say afterwards, I don't really feel like anything happened. Mm. Um, but not not always. I mean, I've seen some people go, you know, start breathe for the first time, and, and like almost every family member presented themselves to them, and they resolved all these conflicts with them. And so it just depends on the person. Some people can go deep really quick, and other people it takes them a little longer. Some people they find that they have very negative experiences, so they they tend to veer away from it. Other people, it's just it's very it's very personal. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying like when people are crying and having these emotions, so what's coming up? Is it like are they seeing things? Is it like all internal sort of like are their eyes closed? Like how does that like what's the experience when you actually get into it for a little bit? It's a hard question to ask because our unconscious is huge and we have no idea how huge and where we're going to go. So it's basically like a I mean, warp speed into some part of our unconscious. Some people have visions. Some people have a lot of sadness and grief. Some people are ecstatic and laughing. Some people have a lot of energy come up. So it's a very kinesthetic for them. So it's like as soon as they get into the breath work, they start like shaking and moving their body. And it's like a way of releasing some energy that's maybe stuck. Maybe they're holding some tension or something like that. So it's very different for, for everyone. So it's it's really hard to pinpoint what's exactly going to happen. Yeah. How, how do you think that, what does that tell us about the uh, relationship between the mind and the body? I believe it's huge. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I would say there's parts of your body that are holding tension yeah. that comes from not even a physical but a traumatic mental event it's incredible yeah well even like health psychology starting to figure a lot of that out too like i mean we all know that stress is bad for our body and stress is emotional and, and i know that different people um i think i think they even mentioned things like if, if you harbor resentment or if you're not expressing yourself like it could maybe possibly manifest a cancer mm. um I think Deepak Chopra talks about that too, where we might like hold things in certain parts of our body and they need to be somehow released, like emotionally yeah. or sometimes physically. Well, Dr. Bora Matei talks about that yeah. uh, a lot in his, uh, his one book. And he basically says like, it's not just smoking, like one of the examples, it's not just smoking that causes lung cancer. It's like unresolved issues, especially right. when it comes to anger and the expression of emotions that those people who smoke have a higher likelihood of getting cancer than the other people. It's also the intent you put into that cigarette. If you pick up a cigarette and you're like, I need this cigarette to de-stress. Right. Rather, yeah. I'm, I'm going to pick up the cigarette because I really just want to yeah. smoke. Right. <laughs> it's, it's I think true. it's the intention you true. put yeah. into it. It's like, the it's reason huge. why you're doing what you're doing, yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. Which a lot of it's unconscious. Yeah, and, and actually interesting you mentioned Dr. Deborah Mate because he's been on um, a lot of media lately. Um, he's doing actually research with ayahuasca, which is they're coming up with similar findings that they were coming up with the LSD therapy in the 60s. So basically he's working with um, heroin addicts. Like these are people that have not been helped by any other method. And he's helping them with ayahuasca, which is um, a plant medicine from the Amazon that they're bringing up and, and helping people kind of bring up this pain so they can work through it in that moment. Yeah, that's incredible because ayahuasca is a ritualized ceremony. And what you're doing with the breath work is a ritualized ceremony. You keep yeah. seeing themes of rituals and, and things like and that. And that's super music. important because any of these techniques, I mean, especially, I mean, we all heard about, you know, people jumping off bridges and going insane from LSD. It's it's obviously not something that everybody should run home and do if they find out, oh, it's, it's therapeutic. No, like, it's, you know, you need to be in a set and setting that is appropriate. You need to be in a place within yourself that you are ready to be there. And you need to be in a very safe place with safe people in a safe environment, and you need to 
be help, have help available. Yeah. Yeah. And on that same note, I could see the breath work being applied to help deal with grief yeah. in that way. It's a stressor. It's a trauma that you've faced that you're going through. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Let's ask. Like, would that be something that would be I think beneficial? So. Yeah, I think so. Like, I, I was actually thinking when I, when we were going to do this podcast that there's um the new um DSM the Diagnostic Statistical Manual talks about how if you if you grieve for too long of a time, they, they consider it a pathological grief reaction. So I think yeah. about these people that, um, you know, don't grieve for very long, and we call those resilient people. Yeah. And But who are these resilient people, and are they really just able to get over things quicker, or are they somehow repressing something? And, I mean, I think, like, any way to sort of get things up so that you can deal with them. I mean, people are dealing with grief. They need to work through these feelings. They need to cry. They need to feel these feelings. And, and I know I remember someone telling me when they were a young child, when their father left, he wasn't allowed to cry because he was a boy. Yeah. And I'm like, that's going to, I mean. That's very interesting. You hear that a lot. Heart. A lot. Not even, especially even the older generations, um, even with women, they're not supposed to cry. They're supposed to just get over it. Yeah. And it's just like, you feel satisfied because they were taught that emotions, dying emotions isn't good. And if you're having these egg emotions, well, that makes you, um, I guess, weak. And so you have to sort of. Uh, push them down and if you can push them down then you're good then you're successful then we'll love you and praise you for that and it really sends a mixed message if that's not actually helping you heal yeah. so you're not actually healing so you're just causing yourself and body more stress and so like i can still see when i do grief groups and stuff we're just talking about it and allowing people to say no it's okay to have negative emotions like you need to grieve like and there's no point in time, like, yeah, you suppress it, but now's a great time to sort of start looking at that. Mm-hmm. And it comes up and you're just like, but they're like, but it's been so long because people think a length of time means something. But no, you've been suppressing the whole time. Like, you, you were good at suppression, right? Like that was your skill. Now you're trying to have the skill is to let that go and feel what it feels like and realize you're not a bad person for crying, mm-hmm. for grieving, for missing the one you love, you know? Mm-hmm. I had a student come to my office the other day and she was just stressed out and she looked like she was going to cry. I'm like, it's okay. Go ahead. Just let it out. <laughs> She's like, okay, thanks. Because, <laughs> yeah, you need to. Otherwise, where's that going to go? Oh, yeah. It makes me think of that story of um, the classic story um, um, that basically is famous because of Freud, um, of the case of N.O., um, how she was having, like, all this, like, paralysis in her body until she started bringing up the memories of her father's death. And then one by one, the symptoms started going away because she was able to sort of remember them and face them and bring them up into the conscious so when they were suppressed them, who knows what they're going to manifest into. Yeah. And they didn't have the medication we did, the painkillers. So imagine now, today's day and age, like we're dulling those yeah. feelings. We're dulling those pains. Those well, you pains. got tension here. So my doctor said, I said, I said to my doctor, I have tension in my shoulders. He's like, oh, you want some Prozac? <laughs> like, really? That easy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and... I'm sure, I mean, you guys would know more than me, but uh, sometimes the pain is therapeutic. The pain is yeah. important, yeah. you know. I, sometimes I have to feel back pain to know that my back is recovering and healing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like I always sort of um, tell people that you, you try to go around the pain, but you can't, you know, mm-hmm. like it's an unending battle, but by going through it, it can dissolve, you know, by acknowledging it and just facing it. You have to do a lot of work. It's not like a, you know, work intensive uh, process, but just sitting with it mm-hmm. and sort of your body knows what to do. If you just allow yourself to yeah. sit with that and, and feel whatever comes up. And so I want to go back to the thing about, because we talked about sort of women and, and grief, but men in general in our community, can you speak on how you see sort of men and how the culture maybe suppress, helps us suppress certain emotions? 
Yeah, I think it's really dangerous. I mean, if, if people aren't allowed to express their emotions, then, I mean, they're going to become, I mean, what if they become depressed or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe suicidal or, I think it's really dangerous to suppress those emotions. Yeah. yeah. I was always taught, like, not to cry. Right? Yeah. It's like, as a, as a male, right, you'd be strong, you'd be, you know, you have it together, you know? Yeah, and, um, I mean, there's different cultures, too. I mean, India, I've seen you know, a lot of men take part in crying. It's interesting. I was thinking while you're while you guys were talking about that. Uh, uh, certain you know in Indian types of funerals, it's like women are really I wouldn't say encouraged, but allowed to shriek. Like shrieking is a part of it, and it's it can be as a child. You go to some of these you know you go to someone's house, someone's passed away. A little uh, scary at times, but then you when you grow up, I realize that that's an important part of it. You know, hearing women shriek or hearing that, allowing that, uh, is in its own way therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was after sort of my father passed away and, you know, crying. Like, it's absolutely interesting how I never cried. And so when he passed away, I shed a lot of tears. And it was very foreign to me to, to shed those tears. But he also was implementing the fact that I shouldn't cry. So it's kind of ironic that like, he, it caused him to pass away for him to teach me a valuable lesson about crying. <laughs> um, yeah. But then after that, it was after the death, it was really nothing. I didn't really cry for, oh man, until my mom um, almost passed away. Uh, must have been like what, three or four years ago. I, I was starting to cry again. But what I noticed this time, it was more self-aware that it, it burned. Like it actually burned, it was like acid on my eyes. And the way I took that was because I haven't used them in like, six years or something right um and so you just haven't because you're not using that that part of your body anymore it gets you know it, it closes up and so now i'm able to sort of cry not just tears of um sadness but also tears of joy which i never could have done before so it's very interesting about just the tear ducts and using them and how that facilitate other emotions like joy it's yeah. interesting, a lot of times in breath work, you see people go from laughing to crying. Mm. It's almost like underneath that laughing, there's grief. Mm. I think it's really neat that the, the two can sometimes almost like go hand in hand or happen almost simultaneously. Yeah. It's like so, all this, this energy, you know, coming up in different ways, shrieking or laughing or crying or moving. <laughs> yeah. yeah, life's interesting, right? There's just different <laughs> modes to try to tap into um, similar structures. Yeah. And so have you finished your training yet? I have, um, no, I, I've got halfway through. So okay. I have two weeks coming up in August, and then the um, certification is next August. So I usually go for two weeks every year. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're doing this daily, or you practice things? No, it's something work? like, um, we might do, there's there's actually somebody in Hamilton, um, Susan McBride, who, um, who facilitates sessions, and I might go maybe three times a year. It's not something you do daily. It's not something you do really on your own either, because um, when you go... You're usually paired up, so there's a sitter and a breather, and then so you have somebody there for you, um, and then there's a facilitator kind of you know oversees it, and then um, after the first breather paints their mandala, and then you have lunch, and then you switch partners, so you always have somebody there. If you do it on your own, you know it's I mean you can I mean lots of people do it, but it's it's definitely nice to have somebody there in case anything. And um, do you do you see the lasting effects of that? Like, how do you feel after a week, after two weeks? It's just different every time because you never know what's going to, depending on what came up. Like, I've had some pretty incredible, like, experiences where it actually translated into my family. Like, I remember one time it was, you know, 
I was having a really hard time asking for help for my sitter. I'd always just do everything myself. And um, the facilitator came to me and she's like, why don't you just let someone help you ever? And it, it sort of came down to the thought that like, even though my parents were very, you know, there for me, you know, physically, but emotionally they, they weren't. And it's because they didn't know how. And um, so I, I had this huge crying session of like, oh, you know, my parents weren't really there for me emotionally. And I, I didn't really have anyone to turn to emotionally. Um, and the next day, my son's like, I want to go see Bobby and Jetta, my parents. And I was like, like, that's the last place I want to go today. But he was so insistent. I'm like, okay, well, I'll drop you off there. So we, we get to their house and my mom opens the door and she was bawling. And I looked at her and like in shock. And she said, I had this dream last night that I just wasn't the kind of mother you are. I'm just not loving like you wow. are to your son. And I'm like, my jaw just dropped. I mean, how the heck did that happen? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's not, I mean, that's, you know, probably I would call it a synchronicity, but that there's a meaningful coincidence happening Mm -hmm. here. I mean, I think the work that we're doing is affecting everyone, you know, we tapped into a signal. (laughs) We talk about signals and that's insane. (laughs) I, yeah. I mean, the stories we're hearing from people, from every type of interview we're doing, um, just, just wonderful, amazing things. And it just, it adds to the kind of collective research that we're all doing. And, you know, I find a lot of these points that we want to get to are the same, mm-hmm. which all finding unique ways to do it. And, uh, your breath work is a part of that as well. And you also like kind of, that also tied into dreams in yeah. a crazy way. Yeah. It's very interesting. So, um, I guess looking now at your, your loss, unless you have anything else to say about breath work. No? Okay, so let's talk about your loss. Have you experienced loss in your journey so far? And what was that process like? I have a few times. Um, I lost two good friends, one when I was 18 and one when I was a little bit older. And then my grandmother um, died a month before I gave birth, so I wasn't even able to go back home at that point. And um, I did actually have a dream about her. And it was it was interesting because it happened months later. And um, she was basically just walking down the street and I was, I knew for some reason, I, I kind of felt like I was in the world of the dead in my dream. And I was just walk, walk, watching people walk around almost like in this like nice neighborhood and they were just walking and she just seemed really happy. And she was a very, like she was a very depressed person like um, when she was alive, but she seemed a lot more at peace in the dream. And I don't think we communicated. I just kind of saw her walk by and she just looked really at peace. And I woke up and I felt really good about it. Like I thought, wow, you know, she's in a good place right now. And I, and I kind of felt that and I was so excited. And I told my mom, I said, I saw Granny, you know, in my dream last night. She's in a good place. You know, I went to the world where she is. And, and she's like, what, you went to the world? Oh no, that means you're going to die. I'm like, no, mom, no, it's really okay. It's, it's okay. At least she believes. <laughs> so it was, it was a very good experience. To, to and you haven't died. No. No, you are, you are here physically present. Okay, yeah. So just... If anyone has that dream, to not worry, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. <laughs> That's incredible, too, um, because I know a lot of elderly people, they're suffering near the end, right? They're yeah. going through a lot of stuff, so their demeanor can be depressed and stuff like that. So you can see them depressed for a long time, five, maybe ten years. Yeah. And then you see them, the change which you saw, which, Granny's happy. Like, that was one of the first things you said, just Granny smiling. She's in her neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And I had a, a, a friend who um, told me about... Um, her husband who who died and how like for the she had dreams about him all the time and he always always curled up in a ball and he looked really miserable and then what and it was like maybe a couple months later she all of a sudden saw him wearing a nice suit and just walking down the street so it's almost like she felt like 
and then her dream stopped. So it's oh. almost like she kept seeing him like in this transition stage, and then all of a sudden he just like was released in a sense. Oh, that's interesting. So I thought that was really cool. I thought you guys would be. Yeah, like the, <laughs> the the patterns of dreams and how they change over time. I think it's fascinating. I think it can tell a lot of story about your own loss, how you're processing yeah. it. It could be also how they're doing on the other side. Like I don't know what goes on if it goes on, right? Like just but it's interesting seeing these uh, these journeys of of different souls and uh, in the living and maybe how they're communicating and how uh, even how grief plays a part in the images that we get. You know, like I don't know, right? And I think that's the why I love this topic so much is because there's so much mystery around it and there's very little information and so really all you're going by is what people are saying right and the more people you talk to the better idea you get on patterns and um themes all sorts of stuff and how they change right like i think it's fascinating because i know in my own journey my uh, my dreams change over time i had the more vivid very realistic we'll call it like visitation type dreams in the first you know first at the first three in like the first year and a bit and then there was really like nothing there was just like my father just in the background um, and it was not just like a regular dream, right? Like crazy plots and all sorts of weird stuff, right? And then I have dreams of negative dreams of him and I had like one and then I have another, you know, then it was like six years after that. I'm like, okay, there's, I guess it's because, you know, maybe I'm, I don't need that kind of image anymore, right? And so it's, oh, maybe it has to do something with my grief. But then I had one very similar to the first three, um, probably about a year ago. And I was like, oh, well, I can't, I don't think I have anything to do with my grief because I've really worked and healed from that. But yeah, here's this vivid dream, like out of nowhere, and you're just like, wow, right? And it's just like so moving, so powerful, and it's just like I just sit in the mystery of it all, you know? I'm like, wow, because like, I think being in academia, you may attest to this that um, there's so much stuff that's saying like what we know, and when we when we have that idea of like science and we know things, we box life in, and we forget about the mystery. It's like birth, right? Like I'm guessing. Like, how was it like you birthed a child, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and like that experience, right? Because you can learn that from a textbook on what it would be, but like the feeling of it and just looking at a child after saying that came from me, like, what's that like? You know, in the sense of, did that even relate to the textbook, right? Or did it, did, were you in the mystery of, how did this even be? Oh, how was this even created? It's all a mystery. I guess it makes me think about like, what are these dreams? Are they like something from within us or something from without, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Uh, Olinger, say that properly. Um, she brought up an interesting thing. I don't know if you know exactly what she was saying, but she said a statement of like, we're all like searching for our place in the universe or something mm -hmm. along those lines. I don't know. She said it way more better than me. Check out that podcast if you have an opportunity. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it just boggles my mind about uh, the commonalities as well. Like how do the two people who are studying different, you know, somewhat different topics reach the same conclusions and all that, you know, science is kind of getting a little better at that, you know, topics they didn't want to touch. Now we're starting to touch, which is an amazing thing. You know, the research is being done. Uh, so we just got to get our feet wet and, and just uh, drop the pseudo of these sciences now and just, just relive all that. You know? And like the big thing is you can't test everything. You know, and the science would say if you can't test it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Right? Basically. And so, you know, like how do you test the afterlife? You can't really do it, right? So they say, Oh, like does it's not a valuable question because you can't test it, right? So um, but it's about saying, Okay, yeah, you can't, but you can still sit in the mystery of it, right? Like it doesn't mean it's unvalid, it doesn't mean you can't test it. And I think that's that's beautiful about just sitting in the mystery of life. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, it it just made me think real quickly of uh, like my workplace, just a workplace. You know, there's a very common economic slogan: if you can't ma- uh, measure it, you can't manage it. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Mm-hmm. So how do you measure morale? Well, it's very difficult. So they don't they don't manage it. They don't manage morale, employee happiness. You know, these are things that are coming out now. Like, are you kidding me? Now you're realizing that if people are happy, they'll work better. <laughs> Good stuff, you know. Like, <laughs> well, we should have jumped on that a while ago, but that's the part of the, the culture we live in, right? Anyway, this has been an excellent podcast. Thank you so much for coming on board. Is there any type of uh, place or where, where people can look you up in your work? Or even a place to learn more about breathwork? Oh, the internet's good for that. Okay, so you've okay. heard of that. <laughs> you heard of that? Rock Transpersonal Training, I think, is the website that okay. talks a lot about the breath work. Perfect. What was the name of the first individual who started it? The oh, Czechoslovakian yes. gentleman? Stan Groff. Perfect. You can yeah. Google Stanislav Groff. And hopefully I'll be conducting workshops in the Niagara region when I get certified next fall. So Beautiful. So you'll have your own website and stuff after yeah. then and you'll start like, establishing yourself yeah. in this area? Cool. Yeah. You'll have to come back to promote it and, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah. Maybe even uh, guide me and Sean on a, on a journey. Uh, yeah, you know what? We like to get uncomfortable here. And we like to put ourselves in uncomfortable places. And that is the center of it. Because after that, it'll be beautiful. Well, or not. A good podcast discussing your experiences. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, thank you. Um, everybody, you can um, check out our newsletter at www.griefdreams.ca. You can also listen to or download this podcast at podbean.com or iTunes. Um, Add us uh, on Instagram at Grief Dreams. And if you have any comments or questions, please do not hesitate to reach out at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. Again, this has been a great show. And uh, thank you very much, Carrie. Thank you for coming in. beginning. beginning.